I'm glad, I hope this works, I'm glad to be here again, although my dream was to speak from Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> Probably if that is close, something would have happened with that place. Okay, I hope you will not be too bored because I will really talk about what the title says, The Courage of Hopelessness, a kind of a quick overview of the ethico-political situation in which we are and what we can hope about, what we can do, what we should do. I would like to begin with what I see as the predominant attitude among today's academic leftists. I think this attitude is the one which back in 1937 George Orwell described in a wonderful way. It's a quote from George Orwell. We all rail against class distinctions, but very few people seriously want to abolish them. Here you come upon the important fact that every revolutionary opinion draws part of its strength from a secret conviction that nothing can really be changed. End of quote. Orwell's point is that radicals invoke the need for revolutionary change as a kind of superstitious token that should achieve the opposite, that should prevent the change from really taking place. Like today's academic leftist who criticizes capitalist cultural imperialism, but is in reality horrified at the idea that his field of study would really break down. The stance is here the same as that of the smoker, convinced that he can stop smoking if he chooses to do so. The possibility of change is evoked to guarantee that it will not be acted upon. And I mean this literally. I read a short essay on smoking and they say that uh, the very fact that you think that, oh, but I can stop smoking whenever I want, makes it sure that you will never stop smoking. <laughs> it is only when we despair and don't know anymore what to do, that change can be enacted. We have to go through this zero point of hopelessness. The lesson of the 20th century communism is that we have to gather the strength to fully assume this hopelessness. Giorgio Agamben said in a recent interview that, quote, thought is the courage of hopelessness, end of quote. An insight which I think is especially pertinent for our historical moment when even the most pessimist diagnostics as a rule finishes with an uplifting hint at some version of the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. The true courage is not to imagine an alternative, but to accept the consequences of the fact that there is no clearly discernible alternative. The dream of an alternative is a sign of theoretical cowardice. It functions as a fetish which prevents us from thinking to the end the deadlock of our predicament. In short, the true courage is to admit that the light at the end of the tunnel is most likely the headlight of another train approaching us from the opposite direction. <laughs> this train approaching us from the opposite direction 
assumed lately many forms. In the last year or so, troubles in our global capitalist paradise exploded at at least four levels. The renewed fundamentalist terrorist threat, the declaration of war against ISIS and so on, geopolitical tensions with and between non-European new powers, China, Russia and so on, the flow of refugees crossing the wall that separates us from them, or as Peter Sloterdijk, who unfortunately was not able to be here today, he uses the term cupola, like we in the privileged West live under a cupola and we don't even see this wall that separates us from the outside. And of course, last threat, ecology. So let me begin by ecology. In December 2016, smoke in big Chinese cities became become so thick that thousands fled into the countryside, trying to reach a place where one can still see blue sky. This air apocalypse affected half a billion people. For those who remained moving around, began to resemble life in a post-apocalyptic Hollywood blockbuster. People walking around with large gas masks in a smoke where even nearby trees, trees are invisible. A new category was thus added to the long list of refugees from wars, droughts, tsunamis, earthquakes, economic crisis and so on. Smog refugees. Now, perhaps the most surprising thing about this apocalypse is its quick renormalization. After the authorities could no longer deny the problem, they tried to establish a new procedure which somehow enables people to continue their daily life by way of following new routines, as if the catastrophic smog is just a new fact of life. On designated days, you try to stay at home as much as possible if necessary. You walk around with masks. Children, even in China, I read, <coughs> rejoice in the news that on many days schools remain closed, an opportunity to stay at home and play. Making a trip to the countryside where the blue sky is still visible becomes a special occasion one looks forward to. There are already in China, I was told, the dozens of agencies specialized in such one-day trips. They just promise we will take you to a place where you will see the sky. The important thing is, that's the official motto, not to panic and to maintain the appearance that in spite of all troubles, life goes on. One thing is sure, an extraordinary social and psychological change is taking place in front of our eyes. The impossible or unthinkable is becoming possible. An event first experienced as impossible, but not real, the prospect of a forthcoming catastrophe, which, however probable we know it is, we do not believe that it will effectively take place, becomes real, but no longer impossible. Once the catastrophe occurs, it is renormalized, perceived as part of the normal run of things. 
The gap which makes these paradoxes possible is the one between knowledge and belief. We know the ecological catastrophe and other catastrophes are possible, probably even, yet we do not believe they will really happen. <coughs> Recall the same mechanism in another field. Uh, uh, 20 years ago, a little bit more, the siege of Sarajevo in the early 1990s. The fact that a normal European city of half a million inhabitants will be encircled, starved, regularly bombed, its citizens terrorized by sniper fire and so on, and that this will go on for three years, was considered unimaginable just weeks before. It would have been extremely easy for Western powers to break the siege of Sarajevo and open a small safe corridor out of the city. When the siege began, even the citizens of Sarajevo thought, thought this is a short-term event. They just, most of them, tried to send their children to safety for a week or two. This mess will be over, they thought. And then, very fast, the siege was normalized. This same passage from impossibility to normalization uh, is clearly discernible now in the United States liberal establishment after Donald Trump's victory. First, they were in a panic, it cannot happen. Once it happened, it's renormalized. Uh, this renormalization is very interesting. Already back in July 2008, CNN was showing a report, The Greening of Greenland, celebrating new opportunities that the melting of ice offers to Greenlanders. They can already grow vegetables in open land and so on. The obscenity of this report is not only that it focuses on the minor benefits of a global catastrophe, to add insult to injury, it plays on the double meaning of green in our public speech. Green for vegetation, green for ecological concerns. So that the fact that more vegetation can grow on the Greenland soil because of the global warming is associated with the rising of ecological awareness. Are such phenomena not yet another example of how right Naomi Klein was spent in her shock doctrine? She described the way global capitalism exploits catastrophes to get rid of the old social constraints and impose its agenda on the slate cleared by the catastrophe. Perhaps the forthcoming ecological disasters, far from undermining capitalism, will serve as its greatest boost. I think again that this Hegel's idea of coming of reason, you engage in doing something, the result is the opposite. This Hegelian logic is more valid than ever. Let's take a cold look at Chinese cultural revolution, Maoism in the 60s. What was his, if I may use this, suspicious ideological term, what was the objective function of cultural revolution? Today, I think it's clear to create the conditions for Deng Xiaoping reform for the capitalist open. What cultural revolution did is clear the slate of tradition, produce isolated individuals 
were ready for the new onslaught of capitalism. What gets lost in this shift from impossibility to renormalization is the proper sense of what is going on with all unexpected threats the catastrophe has. For example, one of the unpleasant paradoxes of our predicament is that the very attempts to counteract ecological threats may contribute to the warming of the poles. The ozone hole helps shift the interior of the Antarctic from global warming, warming. so if it will be healed, the Antarctic could quickly catch up with the warming of the rest of the Earth. One thing at least is true. In the last decades, it was fashionable to talk about the predominant role of intellectual labor in our post-industrial societies. However, materiality is now reasserting itself with a vengeance in all its aspects. Is this divine science? <laughs> <laughs> From the forthcoming struggle for scarce resources, water, food, energy, minerals, to environmental pollution. Now comes the more tricky part of my analysis. Even when we profess the readiness to assume our responsibility for ecological catastrophes, this can be a tricky strategy to avoid the true dimensions of the catastrophe. There is something deceptively reassuring in our readiness to assume the guilt for the threats to our environment. We like to be guilty since if we are guilty then it all depends on us. We pull the strings of the catastrophe so we can also save ourselves simply by changing our lives. What is really difficult for us, at least for us in the West, to accept is that we are reduced to a purely passive role of an impotent observer who can only see and watch what his fate will be. To avoid such a situation, we are prone to engage in frantic obsessive activity. Recycled paper, bioorganic food, whatever, just so that you can be sure that you are doing something, making your contribution. Like a football fan, who supports his team in front of the TV screen at home, shouting and jumping from his seat in a superstitious belief that this will somehow influence the outcome. It is true that the typical form of fetishist disavow apropos ecology is, I know very well that we are all trapped, but I don't really believe it, so I'm not ready to do anything important to change my way of life. But there is also the opposite form of disavow. I know very well that I cannot really influence the process which can lead to my ruin, like a volcanic outburst. But it is nonetheless too traumatic for me to accept this, so I cannot resist the urge to do something, even if I know it is ultimately meaningless. I claim, is it not for this same reason that we buy organic food? Who really believes that the half-rotten and expensive organic apples are really healthier? The point is that by way of buying them, we do not just buy and consume a product. We simultaneously do something meaningful. Show our care for Mother Earth, our global awareness, we participate in a large collective project and so on. I claim 
we have to finish with such games. The apocalypse in China is a clear indication of the limits of our predominant environmentalism. This strange combination of catastrophism and routine, of guilt feeling and indifference. Ecology is today one of the major ideological battlefields. With a whole series of strategies to obfuscate the true dimension of the ecological threat. First, we still find with persons like Donald Trump, simple ignorance. It's a marginal phenomenon, not worthy of our preoccupation. Life of capital goes on, nature will take care of itself. Second position, science and technology can save us. Third position, leave the solution to the market, higher taxation of the polluters and so on. Fourth position, superego pressure on personal responsibility instead of large systemic measures. Each of us should do what he or she can, recycle, consume less and so on. Fifth position, maybe the worst of them all, advocating a return to natural balance, to a more modest traditional life by means of which we renounce human hubris and become again respectful children of our mother earth. This whole paradigm of mother nature derailed by our hubris is wrong. As I always repeat, if there is something true in ecology, it's the insight that our mother earth is a terrible bitch. Catastrophes <laughs> were going on before we humans have here. We have no safe place to return. So, does the predominant ecological discourse not address us as a priori guilty, indebted to Mother Nature, under the constant pressure of the ecological superego agency, which addresses us in our individuality? The way ideology functions today when you complain about ecological threats is, but what did you do today to repay your debt to nature? Did you put all newspapers into a proper recycle bin? And all the bottles of beer or cans of coke? Did you use your car when you could have used a bike or some means of public transport? Did you use air conditioning instead of just... Did you just open wide the windows instead of using air conditioning and so on and so on? The ideological stakes of such individualization are easily discernible. I get lost in my own self-examination instead of raising much more pertinent global questions about our civilization. <laughs> Plus, one should note how this individual culpabilization is immediately supplemented by an easy way out. Recycle bioorganic food, use renewable energy and so on, and you no longer have to feel guilty. You can enjoy your life as usual. If I may use again, even I think we're going to use it in this very place. My favorite example is Starbucks. By Starbucks, cappuccino, they always emphasize 2% goes for some stupid Guatemala children, 2% for some African jungle and so on. So you can remain a consumerist. It's an ingenious strategy. Now, the price of, for catastrophes caused by consumerism is simply included into the price of the commodity. So you can go on. Another threat to be avoided 
is the moralizing anti-capitalism. All the talk about how capitalism is sustained by the egotist greed of individual capitalists for more power and wealth and so on. In reality, I claim, in capitalism, personal greed is subordinated to the impersonal striving of the capital itself to reproduce and to expand. So I think it's not that we need less egotism, we need maybe more enlightened egotism. I think that fanatical capitalists are real figure as already Walter Benjamin took of religious belief. They are ready to put at stake everything for their sacred goal, the expanded self-reproduction of capital. Not to mention the fact that this uh, individualized anti-capitalism, our media are full of anti-capitalism. No? This company is cheating, polluting environment, the other company is using state labor and so on, and children labor and so on and so on. <coughs> Just to avoid more radical systemic questions. So what is to be done? as Lenin would have put it. And I here said that Peter Sloterdijk, who is unfortunately not a Leninist, is not here. <laughs> because I think you should be taken seriously. I absolutely reject the usual Habermasian dismissal of Sloterdijk as kind of almost neo-fascist. In his last book, if it's still the last, what happened in the 20th century? Sloterdijk provides his own outline of what is to be done. This outline is encapsulated by the titles of the first two essays in his book. The Anthropocene and from the domestication of men to the civilizing of cultures. Anthropocene, as we all know, designates a new epoch in the life of our planet in which we humans cannot any longer rely on the earth as a reservoir ready to absorb the consequences of our productive activity. We cannot any longer afford to ignore the side effects, collateral damage of our productivity. These effects cannot any longer be reduced to the background of the figure of humanity. We have to accept, accept that we live on a spaceship Earth, responsible and accountable for its conditions. Earth is no longer the impenetrable background or horizon of our productive activity. It emerges as another finite object which we can inadvertently destroy or transform it to make it unlivable. This means that at the very moment when we become powerful enough to affect the most basic conditions of our life, we have to accept that we are just another species on a small planet. A new way to relate to our environments is necessary, once we realize this. No longer a heroic worker expressing his, her, their creative potentials and drawing from the inexhaustible resources from our environments, but a much more modest agent collaborating with our environments, permanently negotiating a tolerable level of safety and stability. What matters in capitalist reproduction is the self-enhancing circulation focused on profit and the collateral damage done to the environment not, is not included into the costs of production. It is in principle ignored. Even the attempts to take it into account through 
taxation or by way of directly putting a price tag on every natural resource cannot but misfire. Namely, do you know that one of the solutions which are debated today is radical universalized capitalism? Like the idea is that everything should be commodified. Some crazy American environmental capitalists made this mental experiment. They tried to put a price tag even on air. On air. They claimed, I don't know, so many trillions or billions of dollars. So we should treat it as another commodity and charge it. Feminists tried something, some feminists. Similar 34 years ago when I was young. They claimed that housework of the wife is not paid. So let's pay. Let's account how much it costs and so on and so on. I don't think this universal commodification is the solution. So, in order to establish a new mode of relating to our environs, a more radical politico-economic change will be necessary. What Sloterdijk calls the domestication of the wild animal culture. Namely, till now, each culture disciplined or educated its own members and guaranteed civic peace among them in the guise of state power. But the relationship between different cultures and states was permanently under the shadow of potential war, with each state, each state of peace, nothing more than a temporary truce. As Hegel conceptualized it, the entire ethics of state, of a state, culminates in the highest act of heroism, the readiness to sacrifice one's life for one's nation-state, which means that the wild barbarian rela relations between the states serve as the foundation of the ethical life within every state. Is today's North Korea, with its ruthless pursuit of nuclear weapons and rockets to hit with them distant targets, not the ultimate example of this logic of unconditional nation-state sovereignty. However, the moment we fully accept the fact that we live on a spaceship Earth, the task that urgently imposes itself is that of civilizing civilizations themselves, of imposing universal solidarity, cooperation among all human communities, a task rendered all the more difficult by the ongoing rise of sectarian, religious and ethnic, heroic violence and readiness to sacrifice oneself and the world for one's specific cause. The overcoming of capitalist expansionism, wide international cooperation and solidarity that must also be able to transform themselves into an executive power ready to violate state sovereignty, are, the, are these not all measures destined to protect our natural and cultural commons? So although I know that Sloterdijk would explode if I were to call him a communist, he's very anti-communist, I think that what he describes as our task, all the features point towards some kind of communism. They imply a communist horizon, the horizon of some global cooperation beyond state sovereignty, beyond global market. So what is to be done? Again, maybe one should follow the good old Marxist path 
and shift the focus from politics to the science of post-capitalism that are clearly discernible within global capitalism itself. For example, in the rise of what Jeremiah Rifkin calls collaborative commons, a new mode of production and exchange which seems to leave behind private property and market exchange. One could thus conceive collaborative commons as the return at a higher level of the gift exchange. In collaborative commons, individuals are giving their products free into circulation. This emancipatory dimension of collaborative commons should, of course, be located into the context of the rise of what people call Internet of Things, combined with another result of today's development of productive forces, the explosive rise of zero marginal costs. More and more products can be reproduced for no additional costs. However, I claim, due to mutually exclusive readings of Internet of Things impose themselves. Internet of Things as the domain of potential radical emancipation, a unique chance of combining freedom and collaboration, where, to paraphrase Juliet's definition of love from Shakespeare's Romeo, the more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite, versus Internet of Things as complete subversion into the divine digital other, where I am deprived of my freedom of agency. But are these two readings really mutually exclusive? Are they not just two different views on the same reality? What are the things in this so much celebrated Internet of Things? They refer, as we all know, to a wide variety of devices, such as heart monitoring implants, biochip transponders on farmed animals, electric plants in coastal waters, uh, automobiles with built-in sensors, DNA analysis devices for environmental food monitoring, and so on. These devices collect useful data with the help of various existing technologies, and then automatically flow the data between other devices. Human individuals here are also things whose states and activities are continually registered and transmitted without their knowledge. Their physical movements, their financial transactions, their health, their eating and drinking habits, what they buy and sell, what they read, listen to, watch, and so on, all is collected in digital networks which know ourselves better than we ourselves know ourselves. The problem is, how will this explosion of the Internet of Things affect our, the identity of our self? I here briefly rely on a popular book, Yuval Harari, Commodeus. Harari describes how our self is composed of narratives which retroactively try to impose some consistency on the pandemonium of our experiences, obliterating experiences and memories which disturb these narratives. Ideology does not reside primarily in stories invented by those in power to deceive others. It resides in stories invented by ordinary subjects, ourselves, to deceive ourselves. But the pandemonium persists, and the machines 
the digital machine, will register the discords and will maybe be able to deal with these discords in a much more rational way than our conscious selves. Say, when I have to decide to marry or not, the machine will register all the shifting attitudes that haunt me. My past pains, disappointments that I prefer to swipe under the carpet. And incidentally, an American computer scientist told me, they already made this wonderful experiment. A couple of, some couples who were thinking about marrying, uh, themselves uh, accepted to be totally monitored, their activities, their statements, and so on. And then without telling them, the scientists registered the computer's advice. It was much better in the long term appropriate than their own decision. Computer absolutely predicted this marriage will last, this marriage will not last, and so on and so on. And why not extend this prospect even to political decisions? Why myself can be easily seduced by a populist demagogue? The machine will take note of all my past frustrations. It will register the inconsistencies between my fleeting passions and my other opinions. So why should the machine not vote on my behalf? Again, my friends in the United States already did the same experiment precisely with Trump voters and some others. They follow them, register their opinions, their habits and so on, and then they not only predicted how they will vote, but they predicted how, in accordance with their own true convictions, they should vote. And again, machine made a better decision. Uh, so again, maybe this is the solution to get rid of Gerd Wilders. <laughs> no, computers to vote, he is lost. Okay. Why, my, again, uh, so why brain sciences confer the post-structuralist idea that we are stories we are telling ourselves about ourselves, stories which are a confused bricolage, an inconsistent multiplicity of stories with no single self totalizing them, brain sciences seem to offer, or promise at least, a way out, which is precisely because the machine which reads us all the time is blind without awareness, a mechanic algorithm, it can make decisions which are much more adequate than those made by human individuals. Much more adequate not only with regard to external reality, but also and above all with regard to this individual themselves, to what they want or need. A quote from Harari. Liberalism sanctifies the narrating set and allows it to vote in the polling stations in the supermarket and in the marriage market. For centuries this made good sense, because though the narrating self believed in all kinds of fictions and fantasies, no alternative system knew me better. Yet once we have a system that really knows me better, it will be foolhardy to leave authority in the hands of the narrating self. Liberal habits, such as democratic election, will become obsolete because Google will be able to represent even my own political opinions better than myself." End of quote. One can make a very realistic case for this option. Scientists who advocate this option 
they don't claim that the computer is omnipotent and infallible. No, it can make mistakes. It is simply that on average, its decisions work substantially better than the decisions of our mind. In medicine, it makes better diagnosis than our average doctor, and so on. Up to the exploding algorithmic trading on stock markets, where programs that one can now download for free already outperform financial advisors. For example, I read recently that specialists on uh, in uh, uh, stockbrokers, advisors on Wall Street and in the panic because some two ordinary guys put on the market, you can freely download it, a program, and it's proven that if you simply follow that program in your investments, the result on average is better than if you follow expensive, uh, expensive uh, advisors. One thing is clear, the liberal true self, the free agent which enacts what I really want, simply doesn't exist, and fully endorsing this inexistence means abandoning the basic individualist premise of liberal democracy. So if development will render homo sapiens obsolete, what will follow? One option is a post-human homo deus with abilities that are traditionally identified as divine, or the opposite option a quasi-omnipotent digital machine. So it's either singularity, we will immerse ourselves into some kind of unified global awareness, or blind intelligence decoupled from our consciousness. My option here is that what will probably happen is a third possibility. A radical division, much stronger than the class division within human societies. What do I mean by this? Among the best Soviet jokes that I remember from my youth is the one about a debate in the Politburo in High Stalinism 35 about money. Will there be money in communism or not? Leftists claim that there will be no money since money belongs to capitalist alienation. And rightists claim, of course, there will be money to facilitate exchange of products. You cannot have products without some measure of exchange, without some measure of their value, and it's natural to have money. Now comes the joke. Stalin intervenes. He rejects both views as broad, as a rightist and leftist deviation, and proposes a dialectical synthesis. There will be no money, and there will be money. Then the shocked uh, members of the Politburo asks the Kora Stalin, how will this function? And Stalin, in his infinite genius, calmly answers, well, it's easy, some will have money and others will not have money. <laughs> we should reply in the same way to the dilemma, will the future be totally digitalized society still allow human freedom, or will we all be just elements controlled by the digital machine? The answer is both at the same time. Some will still have freedom, while others will be totally regulated. In the near future, biotechnology and computer algorithms will join their powers in producing bodies, brains and minds, with the gap exploding between those who know how to engineer bodies and brains and those who not. 
those who ride the train of progress will acquire divine abilities, while those left behind will face extinction. So, again, what to do here? The first thing to do, I think, is to leave behind all the pseudo-intellectual, pseudo-rational talk about strategic risks that we have to assume, as well as the notion of historical time as the linear <coughs> progress of evolution, where at each moment we have to choose between different options. We have to accept this threat as our threat. It is not just the question of avoiding risks and making the right choices within the global situation. The true threat resides in this situation in its entirety, in our faith. If we continue to roll on the way we do now, we are doomed, no matter how carefully we proceed. So the solution is not to be very careful and avoid risks. In acting like this, we fully participate in the logic which leads to catastrophe. The solution is to fully become aware of the explosive set of interconnections which makes the entire situation dangerous. Once we do this, once we embrace the courage that comes with such hopelessness, we should embark on the long and difficult work of changing the coordinates of the entire situation. I don't have time here to go into very interesting theological consequences of this attitude, because I think that fatalism is the only way towards freedom, and I think Protestantism knew this. We have to accept that we are doomed, and the only way out is not to play any of these Catholic games, you know, but maybe we are not if we do some good works. We are predestined. Our fate is to approach a catastrophe, but we can change our fate. I don't have time to go into this theological aspect, so let me go into what are the consequences of these steps. I think that uh, many sacred cows will have to fall here. Now, let me commit a public suicide and finish with my pessimist political analysis. One should render problematic what seems the most self-evident today for us, the calls for transparency of European Union decisions. Since in many countries the majority of the public was against the Greek debt reduction, rendering new negotiations public would make representatives of these countries advocate even tougher measures against Greece. You know what I mean? Like, apropos uh, how to deal with image, this is what shocks me. I, I, even with my very good friend Yanis uh, uh, Varoufakis, I have this problem. He's at the same time for more opening towards refugees and for the transparency responsibility to the people of the alienated European bureaucracy. But it's a very tragic thing, don't play with this. I've spoken with some politicians who were part of these negotiations and they told me, you know, that it would have been much worse for refugees if the decision process in Brussels would have been totally transparent. And you, if you follow the meetings in Brussels, you could see that, for example, it calls with Slovene representatives, I don't. When the meetings, because some of them were a little bit left-leaning, when the meetings in Brussels were closed, they tried to make it 
as good as possible for the refugees. When the meetings were public, ah, they were much more careful because they knew that, to cut a long story short, the majority of the people in at least the majority of European countries favor radical limitation of refugees, of immigrants. And this is my first conclusion, a very brutal one. People are not necessarily right. So when you plead, when you ask democracy, you should be for more democracy, transparency, you should be very precise and careful about what you want. I claim democracy now in Europe has its own dangers. If by democracy we simply mean that the predominant opinion as it is now should be enacted. We have here the typical discontent, anxiety of European liberal left. It sees the threat, the biggest threat is for this liberal left, the threat of new fascism embodied in anti-immigrant rightist populism. This scarecrow is perceived as the principal enemy against which we should all unite, from whatever remains of the radical left to mainstream liberal democrats. Europe is portrayed as a con continent regressing towards a new fascism which feeds on the paranoia, hatred and fear of the external ethnic religious enemy, mostly Muslims. While this new fascism is directly predominant in some post-communist East European countries, Hungary, Poland and so on, it is also getting stronger and stronger in many other countries, where the view is that the Muslim refugees invasion poses a threat to the European legacy. It is here, I think, that we should not lose nerves and persist in the basic Marxist insight. This fascism is strictly a secondary phenomenon engendered by its apparent opposite, the open liberal democratic universe. So the only way to truly defeat this is to overcome the imminent limitations of the later. Namely, this new fascism, as they call it, is, this is the paradox, is democratically legitimized. Leftist critics of European Union now find themselves in a strange predicament. On the one hand, they deplore the democratic deficit of the European Union and propose plans to make more transparent the decision-making in Brussels. <laughs> On the other hand, they support the non-democratic Brussels administration when they exert pressure on democratically legitimized new, they call them, fascist tendencies. Like, did you notice how the same critics of Europe who criticize Brussels bureaucracy when it proceeds, it protects interests of capital and so on and so on, were absolutely for Brussels bureaucracy when they put pressure on Poland, on the, I hate the Polish government the way they have it now, but let's face it, it's fully democratically elected government, rightist, anti-immigrant and so on, Eurocentric, but not only it has clearly the support of the majority, but even more, it's a very sad irony, it's one of the few governments today in Europe which lately enacted clear pro-workers legislation, like they lowered retirement, better uh, credits for students, better health care, and so on and so on. 
We effectively live in crazy times where to have some old pro-workers legislation enacted, you need right-wing populist in power, while the opposite lesson also goes to get radical austerity, austerity politics enacted, the best thing is to have some radical left like Syriza in power. But another problem is this fascism, this new fascism and immigrant populism, really fascism. I think there are two wrong generalizations about today's society circulating around. The first one is that we live in an era of universalized anti-Semitism. With the military defeat of fascism, the role once played by the anti-Semitic figure of the Jew is now played by any foreign group experienced as a threat to our identity. Latinos, Africans, and especially Muslims are in today's Western society treated as the new Jews. The other wrong generalization is that the fall of the Berlin Wall led to the proliferation of new walls intended to separate us from the dangerous other. The wall separating Israel from the West Bank, the planet wall between United States and Mexico, and so on. True, but I claim there is a key distinction between these two walls. The Berlin Wall stood for the Cold War division of the world, and although it was perceived as the barrier that gets isolated the population of the totalitarian communist states, it also signaled that capitalism was not the only option, that an alternative to it, although a deeply flawed one, existed. The walls that, we, that are rising today are, on the contrary, walls whose construction was triggered by the very fall of the Berlin Wall, that is to say, the disintegration of the communist alternative. These new walls don't stand for the division between capitalism and communism, but for the division which is strictly immanent to the global capitalist order itself. In a nice Hegelian move, when capitalism won over its external enemy and united the world, the division returned in its own space. As for the first generalization, universalized anti-Semitism, Muslims are today's Jews and so on, there is a rather obvious distinction, I claim, between fascism proper and today's anti-immigrant populism. Let's recall the basic premise of the Marxist analysis of capitalism. Capitalism is a reign of abstraction. In it, social relations are regulated, dominated by abstractions, which are not just subjective abstractions, abstractions performed by our minds, but objective abstractions, abstractions that rule social reality itself, what Marx called real abstraction, real abstraction. These abstractions are part of our social experience. We directly experience our social life as regulated by impenetrable mechanisms, which are beyond representation, which cannot be embodied in any individual. Even capitalists who replace the old master are enslaved by powers beyond their control. And the anti-Semitic figure of the Jew embodies this abstraction. It is the invisible master who secretly pulls the strings. Jews are fully integrated into our society. They deceivingly appear as one of us. So the problem and task is to clearly identi identify them. Muslim immigrants, on the other hand, are not today's Jews. 
They are, all, they are not invisible, as the Jew is for the anti-Semitic subject. They are fully, even all too visible. They are clearly not integrated into our societies. And nobody claims they secretly pull the strings. If one sees in their so-called invasion of Europe a secret plot, the Jews have to be behind it. As you think I'm kidding here, but if you allow me just some five, ten minutes to conclude, the latest stage of pseudo-pro-Western racism already functions at this level. People claim that Trump's politics is contradictory because on the one hand it flirts with Israel, supporting Israel against Palestinians, on the other hand it, uh, it, it, it at least refers to, is close to some homegrown anti-Semitism in the United States. No, I think there is nothing new in this. We are witnessing today a weird phenomenon that I cannot but call uh, anti-Semitic Zionism. Already you remember Breivik, the crazy guy who was not so crazy, for this people in Norway who killed 80 people at Social Democratic Labour Camp. He was literally an anti-Semitic Zionist. With regard to Israel, he was a Zionist. Yes, we should help Israel, it stands the barrier against Arab invasion and so on. But here in the West, he wasn't against too much, uh, too much Jewish influence. And the roots of this anti-Semitic Zionism are already in the Nazi party. I found a wonderful quote in uh, an article written by Reinhard Heydrich in 37, I think, where he says, Jews are a great people. We want the best possible collaboration with them. They are industrious. They will be successful. Just not here. They should have the right to their own state in Palestine, and once they move there, we will have best relations with them. Just not here. We have, again, the same... And so, because of this, it's, this is literally true. I found already, I will not bore you now by quoting them, I found already a couple of examples of people who claim, because it's the only consequent paranoia version, that if this, what they claim, invasion of Muslims, is really an organized invasion, Jews must be behind it. I will not give you names, but what the popular target of right-wing press is George Soros for this, because he is a Jew, a rich Jew, who supports immigrants. And for them, so for them, it's a wonderful paranoia theory, horrible of course, that they even, some of them go so far as to say that all this uh, 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 Israeli-Palestinian conflict is just a mask to the Judas Europeans. To cover up the true fact, they are one and the same force working together, Jews and Arabs, to ruin Christian Europe. That we are doing with Judeo-Muslim blood. Okay, maybe in the debate we can go further. What I'm saying is that uh, this new fascism is called like this. I'm not, I don't like it, of course, I'm horrified at this, but to call it fascism, I think, means to commit a terrible mistake which is typical of the lazy leftists. They, they see something bad happening. They don't want to think what is really new in this what is happening, so the easiest way is to apply this old world, oh, it's fascism, and so on. No, you yourself had a figure, which is the best argument again. You remember he was killed 15 years ago, Tim Fortuyn, your politician. 
He was, I cannot designate him other as a politically correct anti-immigrant populist. Because, you know, his argument against Muslims was precisely, they are not politically correct, they are racist, anti-feminist, and so on and so on. This is why. So, again, we have to think what is uh, happening. The next thing, as I already hinted there, that we will have to think and rethink is uh, the very notion of uh, democracy. How can it work? Uh, a year and a half ago, I was involved in a debate in Germany where the Deutsche Zeitung asked some viewers to ask me a question. And one of them asked me a simple question, which is, who gave Angela Merkel the right to call immigrants to come, to open the gates, when it was clear that on a referendum the majority of people would have been against? Didn't he act in a totally, clearly non-democratic way? One has to admit she was, sorry, not she, she was, yes, but that from purely democratic way a leader should follow the opinion, this doesn't go. So when people want more democracy in Europe, one should very precisely approach this problem. Again, what do you mean by democracy? Who should vote? Should immigrants also vote? Which immigrants? Those who are already here, those who are, those who are not, not yet here, and so on and so on. You know, uh, people like to say, oh, democracy, pluralist democracy. But I'm more and more a pessimist, and my claim is that uh, democracy as we know it, and that's what some people don't like to hear, works only if we can count on a certain basic shared set of values. Minority can submit itself to the will of majority only if they nonetheless share a certain set of cultural values, way of life, and so on and so on. The moment you don't have this presupposition, a certain homogeneity, a totally different, not totally different, a different logic, the logic of complex negotiations, not simple voting, has to, uh, has to enter, uh, has to enter, has to enter uh, the game. So just to finish, where are we today? We had a fake awakening in the United States. It's very interesting how Trump uses this term of awakening against political alienation, people have spoken, people awakened, and so on and so on. And Marine Le Pen and other European populist anti-immigrant politicians already use this term and claim 2016 was, I quote Marine Le Pen, 2016 was the year the Anglo-Saxon world woke up with Trump and uh, Brexit. I am certain, says Marine Le Pen, 2017 will be the year when the people of continental Europe wake up. End of quote. So just allow me briefly to finish. What does awakening mean here? In his interpretation of dreams, Freud reports on a rather terrifying dream. A tired father who was spending the night watching waking at the coffin of his young son, who died, falls asleep and dreams that his son is approaching him all in flames, addressing at him the horrifying question, Father, can you see I'm burning? Soon afterwards, father awakens and discovers that, due to the overturned candle, 
The cloak of his dead son's shroud effectively caught fire. The smoke that he smelled while asleep was incorporated into the dream of the burning sun to prolong his sleep. You know, that's the intelligent Freudian version. That, that's how dreams work. You have an external, you know, these stupid dreams where the phone rings and instead of awakening, you quickly construct a dream where reason which is part of it. Uh, so, uh, now we have the... So why did the father finally awake? Here we should be good Freudians. It's not because the external signal become too strong. And you know, up to a certain point you can ignore the smoke, but when it gets to... No, because father constructed a dream to postpone awakening, including the smoke, into his dream. But then what he encountered in the dream was much, much more horrible than external reality. This nightmarish apparition of his son reproaching him for betraying him. So the father awakened to avoid the real, the deepest truth of his being that he encountered in the dream. And I claim this exactly is the fascist awakening. It's like, you know, you awaken, but awaken precisely in a way to continue to dream. That is to say, to avoid the true trauma that uh, determines you. You determines you. You continue to dream. That's the problem with European uh, uh, anti-immigrant politicians who did Europe awake, awake. No, their message is continue to dream. That is to say, to avoid the true antagonisms of European Uh, that traverse our global capitalism. In the recent text, uh, with the title The End of History, the short, strange era of human civilization would appear to be drawing to a close, Noam Chomsky reports on a set of phenomena which order the likely end of the era of civilization. One should note that Chomsky, who criticized me ferociously for my idea that a Trump victory may lead to a renewed left, enumerates here phenomena, global warming, deforestation, wars and devastations, and so on, which are going on for decades. The most one can say is that Trump's blatant denial of the ecological threat pushes the danger a step further. So that's my point. Of course, I'm like crazy against Trump. But we should never forget that Trump is a symptom of what was false in predominant, I like to call it ironically, left Fukuyamaism. Because this was the basic attitude of the liberal left. We accept global capitalism the way it is, just make it a little bit more human, more healthcare, more this, more that. I claim that this liberal left lost. And if we want really to get rid of Trump, it's not enough just to fight Trump. Trump. If you just fight Trump, you do what I think doctors call symptom healing. You know, you have a serious disease, you can take pills which just ease the pain. But the illness remains there. The only way to really fight Trump is, I claim, to ask what went wrong with our mainstream liberal democracy so that not only in the United States but also in Europe Trump is uh, Trump is phenomena like Trump are exploding. We should begin 
with this self-criticism of the liberal left. Because at one point Marine Le Pen hit the mark. 2017 will be the moment of truth for uh, Europe. I'm not a right-winger, but I claim really Europe is threatened today. Not by immigrants, primarily the secondary phenomenon, we should open ourselves more to them. But are we aware what is happening? <laughs> that this strange alliance, and it's not just did the Russians meddle with, uh, uh, meddle with American election and so on, but independently of this, you should read this ideologies who are behind Trump. Their big enemy is simple European Union. Their enemy is the new global order, the new uh, uh, secret world government, they say, which is embodied in Europe. For example, my favorite author, favorite in the sense of absolute nightmare, Tim Lachey, Lachey or what, is one of these crazy uh, neo-Christian writers who writes about uh, about the end of time and so on and so on. He wrote a novel called Europa, where he locates the evil into some secret West European organization which runs European Union and which is also behind uh, Arab terrorism, behind all bad things and so on. So again, the enemy is Europe, United Europe. This is the old theory, nothing to do with Putin, by Trump, this is so. Uh, I claim that Europe will either have to reinvent itself or die. Maybe it's already over. I'm a pessimist. I'm not here a primitive Marxist. I don't see any train of history how but Europe will reemerge triumphantly. I just to provoke you a little bit. I find it very suspicious of how fashionable today a critique of Eurocentrism is. I well see the necessity to criticize European colonialism and all that and so on and so on. I'm just saying that precisely today, when Europe is clearly losing, when conservative regimes here and there, populist regimes, systematically try to undermine European unity, from Brexit to Marine Le Pen. Did you read today's newspapers? Yesterday she was received by Putin and so on. There is a united front, and what is this front united against? It's not against Brussels' alienated bureaucracy. It's against whatever remains that is still, I claim, worth fighting for in European legacy. Are we aware that the very way we fight for multiculturalism, for universal rights, feminism, and so on, it's only against the background of European legacy of enlightenment, and so on, and so on. So, more than ever, we should insist on this legacy. It is in this way that you should approach, my God, problems of problems of, even of refugees. I'm in no way brutal towards refugees. We maybe should have even more of that. But what is needed is this, to step beyond this purely humanitarian formulation. Are we open enough? Are we good enough? And we simply do a brutal economico-political analysis. On first, how, of course, we, Europeans, Western powers, others, through our geopolitical games and other uh, and economic neocolonialism are responsible for the wake of for the rise of refugees. Second point, 
we should nonetheless ask ourselves uh, uh, simply what is going on here. For example, and maybe in the debate you can then attack me. I notice that whenever I raise this point, I'm ignored as if I did some neo-fascist thing and so on. I cannot notice by looking at the map that just below the war zone, Iraq, Syria, there are a couple of very rich Arab countries. Let's name them. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Emirates. They don't accept refugees. Why not? What game is going on here? But at the same time, they are deeply mixed into the conflict in Syria, especially, and so on. Turkey is playing here games, and so on, and so on. All these issues should be brutally, openly addressed. So again, my position is, yes, even more refugees. But we have openly to confront all questions. Maybe in the debate that we follow about respect, we should approach all these. Because often I see that in this infinite openness toward refugees, there is racism here. There is false respect, which really covers up a patronizing, uh, a very patronizing attitude. So again, a long pinch between United States and Russia, Europe will have to reinvent itself or die. In the years to come, the big battlefield will be in Europe, and the state will be the very core of European emancipatory legacy. Don't fall into easy criticism of Eurocentrism, because at least it should give you to think how all neoconservative powers participate in this criticism. In China, you get, you get dozens of books in English even published about unilateral, for example, they claim European democracy is not good, we need a more deliberative democracy. Then I asked them what do they mean when I was there by deliberative democracy, then answer was not just voting decision but deliberation. But then I nonetheless asked them, okay, okay, but at the end, who will decide? So that's the point. It's simply a pre-democratic vision of a wise ruler should deliberate, ask people, and then he decides, and so on and so on. Again, I think that on the interest of global emancipation, now is the time to fight for European legacy. The European legacy is threatened not only by today's Russia, Trump, and so on, but also by our own right-wingers. My God, if people like Gerd Wilders, Marine Le Pen, we shouldn't say we must uh, oppose them because of some multiculturalism. No, we must proudly say people like Gerd Wilders and Marine Le Pen, if they come to power, this is the end of Europe, of whatever is good to fight for in European legacy. They are the true threat to Europe. So, we live in very difficult times, but to really conclude with my favorite Mao Zedong saying, you know, when Mao said, the heaven is un un under heaven there is great disorder, so the situation is excellent. <laughs> maybe precisely in such tense moments, something new will emerge, but maybe not. Who knows? Thank you very much. He knows what Mao is. Viva can start with the first question on respect. Well, Mr. Zizek, thank you very much for your lecture. Um, I'm very curious what Mrs. Heyer thought of it. Could you maybe mention in this flu of words one highlight, one lowlight? 
I respect you, but I mean in the same way you are different. Uh, um, so we are not equal. This is also implied in the word respect very strongly. If I say we are a unity, we are the same, very clear. If I say I respect you, there is some, some gap coming in. This is in the word, in the word respect and uh, halt in German. And uh, so, so even uh, Richard Sennett wrote a whole book on the word respect, and it is such a tricky concept because uh, uh, when I say to somebody, uh, we do something together, we are the same, we are uh, refugees, you can come, we are all, you come into our country, we are all do something together, or we say, we respect you, but you are different, you do it in your own country. This, there, there, there's, there's, this is one part of the word respect. The other part came up this afternoon very strongly in the speech of uh, Mr. Leijendijk, uh, which was very strong. He said, I'm very left-wing, but we need stronger borders. If we let in 30,000 Egyptians now, our identity in, uh, 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 will, be, will be threatened uh, very strongly. And you used also in the way when you talked about uh, 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 Democracy. You said, "Well, democracy only works when when we have a certain certain basis. When the people in, the, in, in living together are understanding each other. When you say when you do this, it has implications because it means actually you you estimate a new border. And so this discussion we had very strongly with uh, 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 with Mr. Lydeck this afternoon because he he is looking actually for a new concept of community." This is, this is can react on that. Okay, I will try to be because I usually talk too much. I admit, first to admit, I will try to be as short as possible. Uh, let me begin with uh, first capitalism. No, I'm precise. I am definitely not a utopian in the sense that I expect now some revolutions and so on and so on. I here follow, my God, you cannot expect Sloterdijk. He's probably some moderate liberal right-winger politically or being utopian. But I was convinced by him and others that simply, the, put it in very simplistic terms, the global system that we have now forces, sorry, confronts a whole series of challenges, ecology. You can do many things, I'm the first to admit, within capitalism. And I'm well aware that, if anything, the 20th century capitalists, or today China, are even, with regard to ecology, much worse than uh, in polluting the environment and so on. But isn't it clear that the only way to truly confront ecological dangers is in some way to move beyond market? to have a large, even transnational organization. Second thing, this, all these processes, and I don't idealize them, I see their dangers of, uh, of uh, uh, collaborative commons, of intellectual property, and so on and so on. My God, I'm not alone here. Even people like Elon Musk and so on, they admitted that the market logic is coming to an end here. I think that intellectual property is not, cannot really function. This is the capitalism, and so I, I also, I'm not fetishizing it, we abolish money or whatever, I don't care about that. I'm just claiming that to confront all these challenges, what I ironically refer to as leftist Fukuyamaism, that is to say, is not 
enough that some kind of even trans-state global coordinations will be necessary. Let me give you an example, which is my favorite. My good friend, I really appreciate him, and he's not any kind of naive leftist, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, the French theorist of catastrophes. He's part of some mysterious European Union committee dealing with environment, so he told me he was there two days after Fukushima in Japan. And he told me that for one day, Japanese government was in total panic because it looked that the pollution radiation was so strong that they will be obliged to evacuate 30 million people the entire uh, Tokyo area. Now, how do you do this? No place in Japan. The rational solution would be that it's crazy to make a deal, I don't know, with Russia to give part of Siberia. We will have to develop mechanisms for this. That's all I'm saying. And I, am, I totally agree with you that the left today, maybe you can counterattack, but I don't really doesn't have a big plan. Like, I was there on Occupy Wall Street, and I asked people, okay, you are against uh, Wall Street, uh, profiteers, what do you want? And it was a total confusion of answers, from modest Keynesianism to more radical proposals. If I may use an old joke that I often use, but I think I didn't yet use it here. That's my problem. Did you see the movie V for Vendetta? You know that... Uh, yeah, Natalie Portman, at the end, the revolution, the uh, crowd enters the parliament, people take over. Okay, my usual dirty joke is, I am ready to sell my mother into slavery, and she is dead, so I can say it safely, uh, to see a movie called V for Vendetta Part 2. But what will happen then next day after the revolution wins? What will they do? What new measures will they enact and so on and so on? I mean, I'm sick and tired of these big events. One million people on Tahrir Square, on Sintagma Square. But for me, and here, if I understood you correctly, we agreed. The true measure of a radical change is the day after, when things return to normal. How do ordinary people see the change at this level? So I'm much more of a... I agree with you, I don't have any great plan, communism, whatever. I'm just saying in the long term, at least the way we have it today, capitalism will encounter limits. And I am the first to admit that we don't have a... Sorry, please. Don't you, don't you think that capitalism will adapt again and again to these new situations? And, uh, yeah, but then we are going to be lost. It's quite a serious possibility, I'm not an optimist. Then maybe what will happen is what we see in Hollywood. I say when you are disoriented, look at Hollywood blockbusters. But this I mean Hunger Games, uh, uh, Elysium and so on. And we are slowly approaching this, a kind of a radical society, those who are in, those who are out. Maybe this is the solution, you know? Because you know what I and I hope we share here this realism. What I I hate this simple formulas, like I had recently a debate with some people dealing with Middle East conflict, no? and they started to shout at me, but don't you see that the struggle of Palestinian women and of Muslims against Israeli occupation and the struggle for women's rights are basically the same struggle? I told them, okay, it sounds very deep, but de facto they are not the same struggle. Because first you have many feminists who are 
have a certain skepticism against uh, Islam, then you have many Islamists who see modern feminism as the Western capitalist invention, invention to its things, things are not so simple. What is the big dream of the left? To bring these third world protests or other together with our identity political protests, gay rights and so on and so on. I see this as an immense problem and when people tell me, you know, but it's happening. My friends in Israel tell me, you know, last week there was a demonstration in a village near Tel Aviv where women in hijab demonstrated with Jewish uh, 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 sadomaso lesbians in hotel colors. And I just quote them the title of the wonderful title of the Werner Herzog film, Audisverge haben klein angefangen, you know. Yes, this is the beginning, it was, but it will remain probably then. Stand back, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah because... What would you say about these resistance movements, whether they are uh, women in a Muslim country or gay uh, movements uh, or women's movements here? Uh, I would say that's a kind of old-fashioned idea that Foucault uh, already explained in the 1980s, where he analyzed where, uh, that we live in societies, uh, capitalist, uh, Western societies, where there are a lot of power structures that place us in specific political constellations that um, fix us into our into specific identities. And he thought that the, the most important thing to do is to resist, to find ways uh, of opening up the, the, the existing structures and um, find something new. I would almost say in your terms, uh, create events. But the problem of this approach is that indeed after the event, after the uh, resistance, and you saw that when Foucault went to Iran and he was very optimistic about the Iranian uh, revolution and afterwards had to see that the, uh, the orthodox or autocratic regime took over and he had to see that revolution itself or these kind of movements do not uh, bring itself a better world. And that, I would say, is a reason to look for ways how we can use the legacy of enlightenment and also with modernist notions like something of humanity, of dignity, of respect, how we can uh, intermingle these enlightenment notions with a kind of maybe resistance, but I would, I would say this resistance shouldn't only be kind of movements who are against something, but do not find new, a new vocabulary to um, find new political ways. Do you have a suggestion? Yeah, I, w I would say that we, uh, we really need to reflect or speculate on how politics, what politics can look like, and not only in terms of resistance, but also maybe we really need um, old ideas like solidarity and a notion that you used um, to reflect about these kind of these kind of mondial, global problems, and not only uh, um, trust on political resistance. I don't understand, just very, very briefly. I cannot agree here more with you. I even wrote uh, an attack on the notion of resistance which brought me a lot of trouble because I claimed that 
a lot of things which goes under the heading of resistance, you know, I'll put it this way, a certain mode of resistance is simply part of the global ideological game today. It's very safe to be resistant. One can even argue that a certain type of resistance fits ideally, you know, I will now try to provoke you what you will say. You know, my big problem with my otherwise personal friend Judith Butler is... That's a nice philosopher. Yes, but you know what's my problem with her? What she portrays is her subversive position. That is to say, she also likes to resist all the time, no? And the idea is that we still live in a patriarchally controlled universe and her positive model of liberation is this performative self-deconstruction, you experiment, you change your identity. My problem with her view is a very brutal one. What she is describing is simply, I'm sorry for using this horrible old-fashioned Marxist term, the de facto predominant model of subjectivity in late capitalism. I don't see anything subversive in this type of subjectivity. You make experiments with yourself today, you are gay, then you are LGBTQ+, then whatever. This is today's subjectivity. The predominant mode of subjectivity today is not the old ethical patriarchal authority. That's, uh, uh, that's my... That's, so I totally agree with you when you insist, my God, I am for it, old European enlightenment and so on. I totally agree with you here. And I think that uh, uh, in this sense, the big catastrophe was how a certain type of identity politics abandoned this universality and proposed as the highest act fight for your particular identity. I think that this is, although they mean, but maybe so that we don't lose time, I'm sorry. I would just like to answer another uh, uh, point of what that you raised. You see, I will try to provoke you here and sincerely. I'm not a, a, a bad, arrogant teacher who asks you questions, but already has the right answer. You know that the first time we met, you said to me that you're a male chauvinist pig. But you've changed your attitude. No, no, I claim that in a certain way, what do you mean by male chauvinist pig? You should be a male chauvinist pig. Sorry, what is that? Okay, we are not idiots. I meant them in a certain ironic way and so on and so on. If these people call, like to call me like that. But, but let me make my point. Okay, refugees, you said. We must show respect to them. Here I see immediately, as you probably know, mega problems. You have a certain community of refugees who have, let's face it, and we also have them, their own way of life. Now, Part of that way of life is treating women in a certain way. Okay, where does here respect? Because we have a concrete problem here in my own country, Slovenia, I always repeated years ago. The problem was this much. In a Roma community, old-fashioned politically incorrect term, gypsies, Roma community, uh, uh, a girl ran from her family, 20 years old, to the police, seeking refugee, claiming that her father already married her to another guy she didn't want to marry and so on. And then, of course, it was right, all the families took her side. But then, the Roma community said, do you mean seriously with respect or not? They said, sorry, but 
arranged marriages is the very core that maintains the identity of our community. If you take this away from us, in one or maximum two generations, what remains are, you can have our food, our folkloric dances and so on, but it's over. So how would you solve these concrete problems? Where does respect end? What does it mean, respect? I claim respect is not just accept them the way they are. Yeah, there, are there are two ways of dealing with respect towards well, refugees. Yeah. The first is that as a European citizen, or maybe even a world citizen, you have to pay respect to each other uh, citizen of the world, which means that we have a responsibility or have a solidarity with all the refugees in the world and are responsible to, um, to develop a mondial global policy to deal with that problem. That's one way of respect. The other is that you are confronted in daily life with people who have habits or ways of um, uh, living which are totally foreign to your own. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's only a question of being a, a migrant and a, a resident. Uh, I can also sometimes feel very uh, strange next to my husband. I mean, strangeness is, is not really only, is not only um, related to being someone from, a, from another country or another culture. Um, but how to deal with this strangeness of the other? And there, respect is a very important issue. And Richard Sennett has, wrote, has written in one of his books, I think it's not together, but an, an, an earlier book, that what is really important in today's multicultural cities is that you're able to deal with the strangeness of the other. And that means, and you said before, that we shouldn't be different, uh, or that equality would mean that you wouldn't be different. Now, I would say that equality implies that everyone is different and can be strange. And if a newcomer in the Netherlands has strange habits, respect means that this strangeness is taken serious and is a starting point to start a dialogue with each other how again to find how again find common ground which organizes our political community and I mean that's a very difficult thing to do but I would say that as soon as someone is entering a community you are paying respect to a person by starting a dialogue how to find new ways of living together. All very nice. <laughs> I am turning to my example. What would you have done about finding common, new common grounds. 
And of course, there will sit a in which uh, at once there is a deal. You have to deal. I mean, those are the difficult. Those are the difficult situations. But um, I wouldn't. Yeah, I have essential treatment, so it's always the, we have our, all have our deficits. Um, so it's always difficult to keep a microphone. Um, but I would I would say that. Uh, the emergencies or the difficulties, the problems, which are momentary, temporary, temporary, are not uh, the ones on which we have to base our policies. We have to anticipate the difficulties, try to find common ground, and then, of course, in cases of problems, well, it sometimes will go wrong. Okay, I don't want to insist on this too much, but you know, it's not only, I'm not here Islamophobic, just Muslims. The same problem I spoke with my lawyer friends was in the United States, where federal government, with regard to Amish people, federal government insisted on universal elementary education. And Amish people said, no, if you do this, you ruin our community, and so on and so on. So these are problems. What do you do? Okay, I'll put it in this way. I'll put it in a different way. We in our societies, and of course that may be and is here a pro-Western bias or whatever, developed a certain notion of women's rights and rights of sexual minorities, gays, and so on and so on. Now... They're not dinosaurs, these uh, notions. I have to defend my, uh, my woman's rights against other women. And I mean, that, that's uh, the basis of philosophy that you are prepared to start again and again to explain what is valuable, valuable to you and what not. I'm not sure, because here I'm almost tempted, maybe I'm wrong to answer, but there are heavy situations where we encounter something that I provocatively like to call positive dogmatism. Like, to give you an example, I wouldn't like to live in a society where you have to fight again and again against rape. I would like to live in a society where the fact that you absolutely, if you're a man, don't rape women is accepted as a dogma. End of debate. Sorry, I, I, I would really love to live in a society like that, but as a woman living in Amsterdam since the earliest 1970s, rape or being harassed is part of your everyday life, and, you have, to, everyday and you have to defend it again and again and again. I agree, but at least we are... And it's even, even with only Dutch men, sorry. I know, I agree with but at least there is something. They are on the defensive in the sense that, okay, maybe now with this new anti-immigrant right, things can happen. But nonetheless, at least publicly people have to pretend. Nobody perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe some new populists and so on. Nobody dares to pretend that we should debate if under some conditions women can be raped and so on and so on. But still, uh, I think that what is not a particular phenomenon, let me return to the point, okay, we have a concept of feminine rights and so on and so on. So you will say when we, I don't think we should be too open here that another group, which can be even one of our own groups, or some religious fundamentalists claim, no, we don't believe in these women's rights, uh, uh, rights. I'm here for a certain level of oppression. 
oppression in the sense that I think a society can say, now I don't like it because it's really an extreme case, but sorry, there are certain basic rights, freedom of choice, freedom of husband, freedom to leave your family, end of clitorodectomy, whatever, whatever, where there is no debate. I would say, if you look back, uh, in the 1950s, there was no, um, uh, uh, there were many women who didn't have uh, the rights that we have today. But this might be something of progress. And if you, if you look then, how quickly it changed, and if you also realize how quickly new coming women are adapting to this freedom of uh, Dutch women, you can see that this idea of emancipation and freedom is very um, uh, contagious. So I, I, I'm not so I'm not so sure that you really have to say, well, this is what we value, and everyone who doesn't value immediately what we value should leave or shouldn't be part of our society. I would say that's the wrong direction. Many people enter, see the advantages of these kind of freedoms, um, take them over, or we have to discuss them and try to convince people of the importance of these ideas. And that could also be that we ourselves are sometimes convinced about their ideas. It's time. Okay. Uh, sorry, it's time for questions and answers. Uh, we have two microphones. Here is one on the right side. I'm, oh yeah, I see one on the left side too. Uh, half an hour of questions and answers. Before the question comes, just briefly, I agree more with you <laughs> than you think. I especially like what you said about the otherness, the impenetrable others, because that's for me the true uh, novelty of the way I mean it, of this Trudeau-Christian notion of neighbor. Neighbor is not the one who is like you. Neighbor is precisely, you think it can be your husband, your son, whatever. This is for me the key notion. You think you know someone, but all of a sudden you discover there is an abyss. And that's for me the true test. It's easy, here I totally agree with you, it's easy to like immigrants when they give interviews and you see they are like you. But I would like to keep respect for them even when I cannot penetrate them, even when they, they remain other. Here we totally agree. And that was my only point, maybe I put it in an awkward way, against humanitarianism. Because, you know, okay, let me give you the last one, the debate, blah, blah. <laughs> no, there is a saying which I find extremely stupid. Wisdom and it's most stupid. A saying, an enemy is someone whose story we were not ready to listen. Yes, up to a certain point, but wait a minute. Will you tell Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to listen? No, the more you listen to him, the more you do discover that he is an enemy. Everybody is not just an other whom we should learn to respect, blah, blah. There are others who are enemies. Neighbors to each other. We have common ground. We have common ground. Your question. 
getting promised to interrupt you, so I. Um, as far as I can tell, you're largely an opponent of uh, political correctness. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> but I just heard you say that there are some things that should be held as undebatable, as values that we hold that are sacred and not open to question. Isn't that a form of political correctness of censorship? No, absolutely not. Give me time to explain it. For example, let me... Can I give you one example of madness of political correctness? In New York, I don't know state or city, I quote in my new book, Courage of Hopelessness will be out. Some committee for relations, multicultural, I don't care, uh, 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 provided the list of 31 sexual identities, claiming every person has the right to choose them, and if you don't address them in such a way, you violate their human rights. And of course, it's very aggressively written, like men and women are somewhere in the middle, between bisexual, trisexual, asexual, butch, passive butch, uh, uh, name them, and so on, and so on. Uh, then another madness, for example, in Canada, three months ago, there was a big debate about, and I take this correctly, I'm otherwise in deep sympathy with LBGTQ and so on, but nonetheless, they had a debate or what of people who don't fit into this binary he, she. And they are now looking for a new third person singular pronoun, like let's say I'm LGBTQ, I don't want to be, I don't recognize myself, neither as he, either as he or as she. And they play with ideas. One is to use, because Shakespeare used it once, to use they as a singular also. The other is to create a new word, like one is Z, Z, like and E. So if I'm, I'm I claim that this, this uh, type of arrogance, where you have a bureaucratic state body now, which simply decides on a detailed legislation how to call people, and then this is not an advice. This is a measure for which, at least in principle, you have to be, uh, you have to be prosecuted for it. I am here, I recognize absolutely the problem. I'm totally for LGBTQ, but in, with a different twist. I claim that it's not simply that there are people who are masculine, feminine, and then there are others who don't recognize themselves. Sexual identity as such is always antagonist, problematic, and so on. And there is a moment of deep truth in this LGBT uh, form. But, uh, 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 the, okay, I will not go into it. I, I think, I don't have time to develop it now, there is a whole chapter in my new book, but I claim that <laughs> political correctness for me, the way it effectively actually works. Of course, I agree with many of its actual uh, points and so on, but uh, that it's, I don't even see why is it considered a leftist thing, because often in American cultural works, politically correct people are referred to as uh, crazy Marxists and so on. No, it's simply a, a petit bourgeois ideology to deflect real politico-economic struggles with the struggle for correct uh, words and so on and so on. It's precisely 
simply a way to change how we speak in order not to change actual relations and so on and so on. I mean, I can tell you this is very personal experience. I have many black friends, excellent relations with them. The way I talk with them, we would have been all of us lynched immediately by politically correct people and so on and so on. I mean, I cannot go again into entire reasoning today, but you know what's the irony? You mentioned Foucault, uh, his idea of modern power which works through regulation, classification and so on and so on. But isn't politically cor political correctness the way it worked? The utmost crazy example of this uh, uh, regulation through how do you call this, how you, uh, how, how you call and so on and so on. I mean, there are behind of it power, power, power relations and so on. And I am, I am for all that. Let me give you an example. You will see it's justified because it concerns this place here. I got, I forgot to answer, I was ill, I'm very sorry, it was not meant as a disrespect. A message from some Amsterdam students, that's why I'm glad, I'm glad that you are here, protesting that why am I participating in this event here, no, this one, because uh, there are no, no non-Europeans, only one or two women and so on and so on. Okay, I claim this is an absolutely crucial, serious problem, although I must say that my field, philosophy and psychoanalysis, it's not only you. If anything, it's one of the best developed in this sense. For example, since I'm a Hegelian, apart from one other book, also books on Hegel were written by women lately and so on and so on. So, but you know what worries me so much? Alain, we had the same problem in the, in the meeting we, we had in London, the first one on communism. And again, some people said, no, Asian, Asian people here, not enough women, and so on and so on. And then, uh, Alain, but you said something very simple. He said, we are here communists, as communists, it was a conference on communism for workers' rights, and so on. How come that you worry, why are there no Indians and Japanese here? And not even one worried that there are no workers here. <laughs> <laughs> That's automatic. That's okay. We can talk about workers' exploitation. They should not be here and so on and so on. So it's a much more complex topic, but I insist, again, political correctness, precisely it's excessive zeal, how they try to regulate, it's a defense, they secretly know that they're the very model of what I thought when I uh, quoted Orwell. But Do you want also to give a short answer? I was just wondering whether this is an answer to his question. <laughs> No, I didn't answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> then we can go to the second question on the other side. Another question to Slava. I asked this question just uh, 30 minutes before, but I think you didn't have time to develop it. Um, you're saying that uh, most of the problems that uh, we are confronting today are problems of commons. And you're also saying, if I'm correct, that uh, you do not claim to have a solution to the problems of commons that uh, we are facing today. Uh, so, in this sense, uh, for example, a really naive uh, question. If you had uh, 10,000 uh, students or an army of 10,000 people, 20,000 people uh, at your disposal, what would you say to them in order to find a solution? Would you say, read Marx all day, read Hegel all day? What would you say to them? 
I, I am so sad that we don't have time because uh, you see, that's the paradox. You give me as an example the very situation which for me is part of a problem. What type, imagine what type of a society with what type of relations of power in it where a problem like where a problem like this can emerge. But let me nonetheless try to answer you. First, that the problems are of commons. Yes, they are. Ecology is a problem of commons. Refugees are a problem of commons in the sense of, in what sense we are all part of the same humanity, space, and so on. Uh, 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 intellectual property is a key struggle today. We, our commons of symbolic exchange, Google and so on, that's why they are a problem, because they privatize our, the commons of our communication, that the problems today are problems of commons is relatively simple to develop. But, uh, but uh, you know what I maybe, how I would seriously begin to answer you. Uh, your question is, first, uh, now maybe this answer will shock you, but I really be afraid to say, why did you get these guys, I mean it with all respect, no irony, was there, did you feel a sense of irony or not? Because I'm tempted to say, yes, what, what bloody is so bad if they read Marx and Hegel? Perfect, why not? They would learn something. I'm not afraid even to say this, because in a deeper sense, I don't think the solution will come from thinking in pragmatic terms, you know? We have too many pragmatic, too much pragmatic approach. If anything, the solution will come from doing things which appear in the first guys totally unimportant and so on and so on. I believe here in improvisation, in, uh, here I am against at least the traditional image of Marxism. Marx thought he knew where things are coming. I think we are in a situation of total improvisation. I like my favorite of French Revolution, Saint-Just who said a revolutionary is like a captain of a ship which navigates in uncharted waters with no compass, and so on and so on. Thank so, you very much, uh, Zizek. Uh, we go to the next question on this side. I think Zizek is a woman of reality talks. Hello, hello. Can you be very loud? Uh, hello? I can't hear you. Hello. Um, I wanted to ask um, both of you, or actually all of you, if you have ever met a refugee and if you had um, deep conversations with them. Yeah, I, I um, went to the refugee camp in Nijmegen, uh, what is it, one and a half year ago, and I met there someone and we have become friends and we, had, we have had the last year very, very, very deep uh, conversations, yeah. So, I, and um, I have to say that it's for me very uh, good to understand that rather than immediately thinking that someone is very strange to you, that there are many similarities and many people in Syria have, um, have uh, um, ideas, ways of living that are not so 
very strange to the, the Dutch way of living. So the idea that a person from an Islamic culture is completely different from our culture depends very much on uh, uh, the class that they come from in Syria, uh, the background, the education, and, and so on. So that's something that was important to know. But more important for me, I wrote a book on people who stay behind, and I realized after a certain time that the people that come to Europe are mostly the people who are very strong, intellectual, have money uh, to come here. And the people that stay behind, like uh, the mothers, the, the, the brothers, the, the smaller brothers and sisters, but also the comrades who are convinced that they will uh, uh, win the, the, the fight against uh, uh, Assad. Um, they are the ones who have stayed behind and they can't come to Europe and they um, they experience something that we here in Europe don't know anymore. I mean, if one of our children would um, emigrate or leave Europe, we can still visit, very easily visit them, whereas the people that stay behind in Syria are really persons who, yeah, have to face and they can't see their sons or uh, family man members uh, again. So that's, but in, in the whole, uh, the whole um, one and a half year, it was for me completely clear how difficult it is to be a, a refugee and to become a new part of a political community. I'm curious to the reason you're asking this because you think the whole discussion is too abstract? Or? No, I'm, I'm asking because um, it's further, it's, it's normally assumed that refugees is almost like a label, it's like a, a, a homogeneous group of people that are, because they're coming from uh, Muslim countries, they don't uh, treat well their wives or their women or their daughters or they are homophobic and I think that's completely uh, wrong, that might be some of the people, but some of the people are not. And I was very curious to know um, if you had also, Sisik, um, to had uh, contact with any refugees and if they had any conversations with them. Because if you look at the actual um, issue, you can also have homophobic people in the Netherlands. Are you going to kick them out? You're going to have people that are uh, sexist pigs in the Netherlands as well. Are you going to kick them out? So the issue, we're, we're really talking about abstracts of labels which are wrong, and we keep talking, and I heard it over and over again, completely them versus us, and it's almost in our, we don't even notice it, so I just wanted to bring it to the attention because we keep doing it, and I think it's fundamentally wrong in our conversations. Thank you. Thank you. The next question, do you want to have comments? Okay. Very briefly. Uh, very briefly, yeah. Yes, but I think that in this, like, you know, there are no generalities, they are not, not the same, and so on, and so on. But, like, uh, there is nonetheless, I want now to defend abstractions, precisely. I think there is a limit to this, no? Because, I'm sorry if this will appear provocative, but the last time I had this conversation was with a defender of fascism, no? who told me, but don't put all fascists in the same bag package, you know. There are different people, there are also, some of them even have three friends, and so on, all that stuff, and so on, and so on. So I'm for a certain, and I'm well aware, the problem is elsewhere. I'm well aware, my God, per capita, statistically, there is probably more homosexuality in an average Arab country than here. The problem is the status of homosexuality. 
it's tolerated, even solicited somewhere, but you must stay out of public space. So we enter another topic here. But to answer directly this question, yes, of course, all the refugees are not the same, but here things get complicated, like a report from my own country. All our racist media, the worst, precisely fell in love with Syrian refugees in a very racist way. And Syrian refugees, poor guys, I don't blame them, participated in this game. Some of them uh, reported to Slovene media, you know, we are yours, we are always European, but those back, Afghanistan and Pakistan, they are the real fundamentalist crazy and so on and so on. So they embraced this idea that there are different refugees. Uh, again, a Syrian educated refugee was in Slovenia the most beloved person, some right-wing media, you know, like, with them we can do a deal, they are almost no cast. But to ask to a concrete question, first, yes, I met them, and we, you know how we become friends, I'm sorry to give you another variation. Immediately, <laughs> immediately we started to explain sexual innuendos and obscenities. And we ended as extreme friends. None of the bullshit, I, 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 I expert, I, I respect you, oh, your culture, but do you know what happens when a donkey fucks fuck, fuck, fuck a camel and so on. We went at this level, we immediately become friendly. And with a conversation that any self-respectful, politically correct guy would put us all to, to gulag immediately. Point two, not only this, I even now collaborate with them. For example, I had conflict with them, but they're basically my friend, you know, that Slovene group, Leibach, Noe, Slovenische Kunst. They did now something wonderful. You know, Venice Biennale, each state has its pavilion. But they now somehow got the money to build their own pavilion for Noe, Slovenische Kunst, virtual state. It will be, and you know what they did, what we did? They will, uh, they invited, they made the white action of education, all the curators of that exhibition will be refugees. <laughs> and it would be wonderful to do this operation. We are not utopian that something big will happen. But I claim this is the right procedure. Not read them all, we have to explain to you and so on. Up to a certain point it works if you treat them simply as equal. We went to them. We have a big exhibition curating, are ready to curate and so on. And some of them said, Wonderful. That's how, you know, up to a certain point, this works, as you said. You simply presuppose that at some point, sometimes this miracle works. You can communicate with people if you simply presuppose that you can communicate with people. And then fall, don't fall into this bullshit, oh, but they didn't their own culture, but how do I know if they mean the same thing, and so on and so on. So, yes, I did, and it works wonderfully, and I totally agree with you that, like, there are thousands of Slovene people who, I, who are much more foreigners to me than the couple of Thank you, Zizek. Uh, the next question. Um, yeah, for Zizek? Oh my god, but... Uh, I'm sorry. If it goes like this, I will ask you a question as a member of the party. I very much like your suggestion of basically return to enlightenment, enlightenment values and universality as opposed to, uh, you know, particularism.
Because, as you mentioned, not today, but other times now, there's this liberal idea of multiculturalism, which basically means segregation. Yeah. You know, you, are, you stay in your own neighborhoods and you're allowed to keep your own culture. And of course, there's uh, problems between these uh, particular, particular uh, ideologies. For example, feminists and more fundamentalist uh, um, Muslims and also Christians, of course. So don't you think that maybe, um, like you mentioned also, that maybe you need a bit of oppression, you know, no need, so that you don't live in a society where you have to argue that rape is illegal? Isn't maybe the most actually tolerant and um, leftist uh, statement now is to say uh, you have to enforce secularism? Here, uh, you know, like, here I would agree with you, even if it sounds nice, but what does it mean practically? I would like you, if I got it correctly, here very practical, but I may appear a crazy Hegelian philosopher, but I'm well aware of empiric, what does this mean, enforced secularism? At one level, I agree with you, because I had this experience. Once I had a debate in London with some progressive Muslims, no? And they told me we are sick of this patronizing, like, even if we are Muslims, we are, can be good people like you. No, one of them told me, I want to be respected, not in spite of my Islam, but because of my Islam. And my answer was simple. No problem for me if you respect me, not in spite of my atheism, but because of my atheism. I touched a certain limit there. Yes, I, I, would, I would also like to respond. Uh, Hannah Arendt makes a difference between a Jew who is a parvenu, a person who completely assimilates to the society where he's living, uh, for, for example, a person like uh, Heinrich Heine, uh, but, and you also have uh, the paria, that's the person who is excluded because he's too strange. And then she says, what we should be as Jews, we should be conscious parias. Is that the right pronunciation, paria? Yeah, paria, paria, that's true. We should be conscious paria, parias, which means that you are accepted as the person who is a Jew, who has, in this case, a certain religious background, a certain cultural background, and you want to be accepted as such, and not only if you are either a person who completely uh, is adapted uh, um, or a person who is completely excluded. And for me, that would be reason to say, of course, you shouldn't, shouldn't enforce the secularism, of course, because it would exclude many people from our society. Thank you. Thank you very much. The next slide. Yes, two very, very short questions. First, I do think we mostly know what we're fighting for and whom we are fighting. We just don't know how to fight. So how do we fight? Question number one. And the second um, question, Mr. Zizek, do you sometimes worry that your own thoughts and your own work, to a certain extent through conferences like these or through publication, can also become a commodity that you can purchase like a cup of fair trade coffee? It's already a commodity. Yes, yes. He is a commodity. Yeah, but, well, I don't think, hopefully, maybe, I can. I can be 
reduced to this. I mean, uh, what do you want to prove with this? Like, uh, uh, Brecht, okay, you may not like him, but, you know, if there was a task negotiator selling his stuff and so on, as a writer, was Bertolt Brecht. So, I don't think that, that you can approach at this level what if I am a commodity. The problem is, as some people claim, can I be reduced to this in the sense of are the effects of my work reducible to this, that people buy me thinking they're doing something subversive, but it's just the commodity of capital. And I think that I can give you empirical proof why I think I cannot be reduced to a commodity. That I do something which is at least slightly more dramatic. I don't want to go too far now, but let me give you just two, three examples. If you, I don't think you have to, but just make a quick check follow my English publications. Did you notice that in the last years, I was first prohibited in New York Times. Still five years ago, they published a column, now I'm out. Then I had a couple of columns in Newsweek Digital prohibited. Then it was, uh, then in England. Did you notice that already for three years, I'm prohibited in The Guardian, in New Statement, and in the London Review of Books? So, at least admit this to me that if my goal were to be to be a commodity producer selling myself, I'm not doing too good a job. My point is also that don't underestimate to what extent censorships still function. Like, I even know the whole story. Guardian made a certain liberal left turn, more centrist liberal, so the moment I, on my position on LGBTQ and my position on refugees make, made me instantly a persona non grata for this British liberal left. Uh, so no, if anything, I'm now on a suicide path. <laughs> so I'm quite surprised and nicely surprised that here we can still do things the way we do it here. The last time I had a big talk like this in New York, at that socialist, whatever, red and so on, there was organized opposition against me, they tried to, they tried to interrupt me again and again. Okay, and the first question, how do we fight? Ah, uh, why do you worry about how do we fight? I see a problem even as a, I mean, I find here we found ways. For example, look at an incredible phenomenon for me, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. He did something that was considered unthinkable. He mobilized people who would otherwise vote for Trump. Uh, I mean, these uh, ordinary working class populists and so on. I worry much, even much more fundamentally about another thing. You claim we know. No, please inform me without any irony. I don't know what we are fighting for. What do we want? Again, as you pointed out, do we want out of capitalism? Do we want what I ironically call leftist Fukuyamaism and so on? I mean, we have this last myth of the left. Uh, the left now denounced it's fashionable in radical left to be against representative politics, against state socialism, etc. We still have this myth of local, authentic, pre-representative democracy, local communities deciding, and so on and so on. I hate 
I claim it's just a myth of an authentic life. If anything, we need to reinvent large-scale mega-bureaucratic organizations that will, uh, uh, that, will, that will learn how to act globally and so on and so on. And I don't know how to do it. So tell me if you know even what we are fighting for. I don't know. I know only this, that for me, not only I don't know, this idea of local communities, people gather, decide their way of life, it's hell to live there. I mean, in the morning, in the after, every afternoon a meeting, we decide how to raise our children, uh, how to organize distribution of electricity and so on and so on. No, I want to live in a society of tolerable, well-functioning alienation. We don't know where we're fighting for. This is the end of the debate. Uh, I thank you all very much for your energy and attention. You too, all of you, thank you very much. We have a short break and then we go on with the last block of the night. We go on till half past twelve. You feel free? You feel free? No. Okay. <laughs> Feel free, yeah, it's another event, yeah. Feel free. Thank you very much.